As we continue our fight against COVID-19, healthcare leaders and innovators are at the forefront of this battle to ensure we are equipped with the right arsenal to overcome one of the biggest public health crises of our lifetimes. Dr. David Ash, Executive Director of the Penn Medicine Center for Healthcare Innovation and his team are among the leaders creating and implementing game-changing innovations during this pandemic. Join us on today's episode as Dr. Ash dives deeply into Penn Medicine's COVID Watch technology and their COBALT program to bring mental health relief to their employees while in the midst of the coronavirus and beyond. Dr. Ash exemplifies the passion his team and other innovators have in helping the world as we rally and work together in order to claim victory over this virus and prepare us for a brighter and healthier future. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Hi, Dr. Ash. Welcome to our podcast today, and thank you for being with us. Well, thanks, Mike. It's absolutely great to be here. Well, I am looking forward to our conversation today, especially given your team's innovative efforts to help combat COVID-19. But before we dive in, a bit of housekeeping. While listening to any of our episodes, please make sure to join our free online community at passionatepioneers.com in order to share feedback and ideas and interact with the global ecosystem. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast so you will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, Dr. Ash, I received a note that we had to have you on the podcast. There's so much great work happening out of your camp at the University of Pennsylvania and Penn Medicine Center for Healthcare Innovation. But before we dive into that and all the work you guys are focusing in on for COVID-19 and beyond, because we're also going to probably talk about some mental health work that your team has really helped spearheading over there, take us back, share us a bit of about how the Penn Medicine Center for Healthcare Innovation even got going, what it's about, and then we'll start diving into all the wonderful work in current state working to battle the pandemic. Great. Well, I'm really happy to talk about the Penn Center for Healthcare Innovation. We started about eight years ago, really just a small group, me and my sort of partner in all of this, a man by the name of Roy Rosen, who was the sort of chief innovation officer for Intuit, the software company that makes Quicken and TurboTax. He had never worked in healthcare before, but lived in the Philadelphia area, was making a change in his career. And he and I teamed up and with the support of the leadership at Penn, we were able to create this center, which now has, I don't know, maybe about 60 to 80 staff members. I like to say that they're all about 28 years old, at least that's the average age, and aim to make Penn Medicine better as an organization and serving its patients and the like. And, you know, most of the work we did was in care delivery redesign. Of course, when the pandemic hit, we were pretty well positioned to be having already rethought a lot of healthcare processes. And frankly, a lot of that got accelerated because the pandemic created that kind of burning platform. 
And in regards to those team members that call the Center for Healthcare Innovation home, you said uh, 60 plus team members, average age, 28 years or so. Are those design think engineers? Are they software engineers? What are those types of team members that are a part of the organization? Yeah, well, great question. Well, first of all, I like to say that the average age is 28. And that's only because I'm in the pool. I think if you took me out of the pool, the average age would drop considerably since I'm old enough to be their (laughs) father. But it is a very eclectic team. So there are like fundamentally the approach is, as you mentioned, a design thinking approach. And many of the staff members are in fact designers. They're people who they've graduate degrees in design and they really direct their sort of the scientific gurus of the work that we do. And I'd have to say that eight years ago, before we started the center, I didn't even know that this life form existed, these designers. I thought designers were people who created beautiful office furniture or wine glasses or graphic design. I didn't know anything about experience design or the kind of sort of industrial process design that these people embody. And so I went from a position of not knowing that these career even existed to now fundamentally believing that you can't advance healthcare without these individuals. And that has been, I think, a lesson throughout Penn Medicine as people have recognized the tremendous ability of these individuals to re-see how we do things and reimagine how we might do them better. And they become a critical part of our workforce. That along with software designers, software developers, sort of innovation managers, statisticians, and of course, clinicians, because it's fundamentally important to be clinically embedded and have some clinical context or you just can't make it work. I really don't think healthcare innovation succeeds when it's two kids in a garage. I think it has to be done in the context of healthcare and has to have a combination of all of the talents that we bring together in the center. I couldn't agree more. I always you know, when I'm working with healthcare innovators and startups around the country and around the world, to be frank, I always mention that, Dr. Ash, we cannot be building in a vacuum. I'm one of those entrepreneurs. The industry is too complex. We have to be working together, having the frontline, you know, care providers there, even the patients, right? The folks that we are supposed to be ultimately serving, they need to be at that table during the design process and the the building of innovation. So I couldn't agree more with you there. One more question. We'll start really turning our attention towards COVID-19 and all the incredible work you guys have moved so fast on. Are you at the uh, center? Are you guys bringing in outside innovators, outside startups, working with those types of minds that are outside the system as well? We do. I mean, most of the work that we do, I would have to say that most of our work is originated within the center and completed in partnership with the entire health system, right? So the innovation center is an enabler of all of the staff at Penn Medicine, right? We don't create all the innovations. We enable them. We are the center for healthcare innovation, not the center of healthcare innovation. And in that regard, often our inspiration and sometimes some of our work is done in conjunction with outside partners. They can be very established partners, like the kinds of companies that are publicly traded, or they can be startups, as is really very common in the healthcare innovation world. So I think we like to develop some things on our own and to take advantage of the things and processes that other people have developed. And I don't think we have a set priority for those or a set preference. Well, thank you for sharing that. And let's start turning that attention towards COVID. And speaking of developing processes or products, technologies or innovations on your own, 
a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine from July of 2020 really caught my eye and has me really excited to dive into this today. And it was a notion that the subtitle is the following, an innovation team at the University of Pennsylvania Health System demonstrates how an automated text messaging system can remotely monitor patients with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 at home and quickly support worsening patients with human care. I'm really interested to learn more about this. I'm a huge believer in the connected patient, remote monitoring, even beyond COVID-19. I think it's a great methodology. They're great tools that we should be using as an industry. But this article mentioned that you guys had the first 3,000 patients, part of what you are calling COVID watch. Can you give us a little bit of overview and then maybe we'll dive in a bit deeper around this initiative and how it got going, some of the things you discovered and what it means during this pandemic? Sure. I mean, I think that really is a great example of sort of innovation rapidly applied, like in the setting of a crisis, frankly. Let's take ourselves back to like mid-March. And we're in 10 Medicine is centered around southeastern Pennsylvania and its sort of main campuses in Philadelphia. And in mid-March, we're already observing what has happened in Italy in particular, what was going on in Seattle which was really almost in flames, you know, from a medical catastrophe in New York City. And we know this is coming to our region. And appropriately, a lot of the activity at the health system is directed at gearing up the hospital to take care of patients who have advanced COVID and require, frankly, mechanical ventilation to help them breathe. And so enormous amounts of effort happen throughout the health system to get the emergency rooms ready, the critical care units ready, deal with ventilator supply, staffing, all of that activity, totally appropriate. And I would have to say that it was just amazing to see my colleagues all do that and everyone chip in. It was just, it was really just inspiring people getting ready for an onslaught that we had already seen happen in New York City, in particular in Seattle, and of course in Europe. At the same time, we realized that for every patient who had COVID and required an intensive care unit or required mechanical ventilation, there might be 25 or 50 patients who also had COVID, but they weren't sick enough to need hospital care. But those people still might, they were nervous, right? They'd still be scared. They still might be so scared they would be showing up in our emergency rooms. And some of them, in fact, would unfortunately get sick enough to need that care. And so we realized that we had a major, it's almost a triage problem of managing the patients who weren't getting all the attention because they weren't needing ventilators, but they either might get sick or they might be worried and just need to be watched over. And we recognized that they were a much larger and important group of individuals affected with, infected with the coronavirus and Penn Medicine needed to find a way to watch over those patients. And so that's when we developed COVID Watch. That really was the inspiration. And we, it sort of it hit us around mid-March, maybe March 15th or so, when we realized, oh, my God, how are we going to manage our community, not just the patients in our hospital? How is Penn Medicine going to support its community? And it turned out that a year or so ago, we had developed a program. We weren't even, of course, thinking about a pandemic. We had developed a program to help provide a kind of remote monitoring of our patients with COPD, emphysema. And these are patients who were often in and out of the hospital 
with exacerbations, breathing exacerbations. And we wanted to find a way to keep them out of the hospital and keep them safe at home. And we created a program we called Breathe Better Together, which was an automated text message based program that would message these patients once a day asking a very simple question. Are you feeling the same, better, or worse than yesterday? And if they were feeling worse, they would be asked a few other questions and they could be connected with a respiratory therapist. And we suddenly thought, that's it. That's what we need to do. Because although COVID has many manifestations, right? You can lose your sense of smell. There are coagulation difficulties. There are a fever. You can feel incredibly exhausted. The thing that puts you in the hospital more often than not, the thing that can potentially kill you are the respiratory complications. And so we adapted and adopted this program called Breathe Better Together. And really over a week or so, we transformed it into something that was relevant for our patients with COVID. We increased the number of check-ins from once a day to twice a day. And we rapidly developed a system to enroll patients who were infected or who were known to be infected because of positive tests or who were likely to be infected because of a symptom complex. And we put them into this program. And then we created a very large clinical back end of nursing support and physician support to immediately respond to patients who were feeling short of breath. Because you can't have a program supporting people who might be getting short of breath without having effectively an emergency response to that. And so COVID Watch, and I'll pause in a moment for any questions you have, but COVID Watch was half technology, a way to engage remotely with our patients and half actual human clinical support back end because you can't just solve these problems with an app. You can facilitate them with technology, but in the end, you really do need real clinical providers who are in a position to make decisions and to help those patients who are sick enough to need hospital care to get that hospital care. So we put that in place very rapidly. It scaled up, it was diffused through a six hospital health system in Southeastern Pennsylvania and really became a way in which Penn Medicine was able to support our community, not just the patients in our hospital. Absolutely brilliant. And what I love about it, Dr. Ash, is sometimes, well, sometimes a lot of the times, the best innovations are the most simple ones. What is the most used app on uh, smartphones? The text messaging app. So brilliantly played, way to take what you already had in your toolkit and repurpose it. I think it's just absolutely brilliant. It is interesting. People do reach for complex solutions. And frankly, many of the challenges we faced in developing the program, although we didn't face a lot of challenges and we were able to do it very quickly, were from people who well-intentioned way wanted to make it even more sophisticated and more complicated. Like we should ask about fever. We should ask about, you know, losing the sense of smell or taste. We should ask about other kinds of symptoms, but we realized that the more we could keep it simple, the more we could put it in reach of the community we were trying to serve. And we did have some sort of false turns in which we tried to sort of complicate it and make it a little bit more sophisticated, but we, rapidly made some U-turns when we realized that we were just making things more complicated, but not better. Well, some of the findings that you and the team published in this journal article for the New England Journal of Medicine, some of the findings are the following. You had invited 3,000 initial patients to be a part of it. And this is what's so exciting to me. Approximately 83% of patients were managed by the automated program without escalating to human care. That's powerful. But let me ask you this. There's a couple other findings in there that you also 
with COVID Watch, you had a twice daily text messaging check-in with the patients. Just out of curiosity, was there any fatigue reported from the patients? Like, leave me alone, guys, I'm good. Or were they appreciative of that twice daily check-in? What was the sentiment around those check-ins on a daily basis? Yeah, what a great question. That is exactly the tension that we were worried about. It's one thing to be vigilant, and but like you can imagine getting tired of that, like enough already. And of course, we saw evidence of all sorts of feelings about the program. I would say that by and large, almost all of the patients stuck with us through the entire two weeks. You know, they could always opt out, right? And we would, of course, respect that. If people said enough, we would sort of let them off the hook. We invited all of the participants who had completed two weeks, would you like another week to continue? And about half of them said, yes, I'd like another week. Wow. That was a great endorsement. By the way, this was like provided at no cost. And then there were, of course, some patients who decided to opt out and we interviewed them or at least samples of them to find out that could we have made the program better? And most of them said, no, I was feeling better. And, you know, I really didn't need the support anymore. One of the things we learned in interviewing people through the program was that they were so grateful that after two weeks, they thought it was a kind of abrupt like dismissal. And they wanted some, something more ceremonial because they had felt that Penn Medicine was their partner through this two week endeavor, you know, with their experience with COVID. And so we sort of made a, like a little sort of text-based celebration. We allowed them to leave thanks to the clinicians who were operating behind the scenes, like, you know, Oz, you know, just providing more of a human closure to the event because we were, whether through a bot or through a human, holding our patients' hands through this two to three week journey through COVID. And people in a very human and emotional way want to acknowledge that. And I think that that's an important design element in thinking about automation. You can automate things to make them less personnel intensive, but you don't want to take the emotion out of it. It's just like when you offer patients with congestive heart failure, you know, a low sodium diet, you have to add the taste back, you know, because sodium has a lot of taste. And I think the same thing is true in these automated programs. As you remove the personnel and increase the automation, you have to add back the sense of emotional connection. And that turned out to be a key design element in this program too. Well, bravo, Dr. Ash. What a great story. And thank you for sharing that. So inspiring. Again, some of the most simple technology, a twice daily check-in with your patients and the power that it created and that sense of connectivity and that personal relationship you developed. Huge. That's powerful. One area also, I have another quick question. Then we're going to turn it a little bit towards some of the important work around mental well-being for your team members over there. But one more question around this, Dr. Ash. It mentions again in the article that 83% of patients were managed by the automated program without escalating to human care. Well, we know that a large majority of why we locked down the country was to really relieve the system writ large in regards to lack of resources and the onslaught of patients coming in, right? And so social distancing would, in theory, would help decrease the patient volume, which would then help lighten the load on all the resources that are being taxed with systems just like yours. But with that 83% population mix within the study that didn't have to escalate to human care, did some of that escalate to some telemedicine applications or visits or engagements with some of your care team where that patient did not have to come to the brick and mortar? 
was that some of the finding as well that we can also escalate to a telemedicine approach where we can keep people socially distant, use those technologies and still deliver care that is needed at that time? Yeah. Great insight there. I mean, the basis of this is that COVID is a very heterogeneous disease, right? So the starkest examples of those people who end up in tremendous respiratory failure, need a ventilator, and frankly, can't be sustained. But most of the people who get COVID will have a viral illness that will be uncomfortable for them, but it won't be life-threatening. And so the idea that 83% can be managed without escalation is in part a reflection of the fact that, you know, fortunately, the majority of people who end up with the disease won't actually need intensive care, but they might need some care. And as you point out, we ended up deploying a lot of our telemedicine infrastructure and our basic sort of telephone calls, like call your doctor infrastructure to help support these patients. We never thought that COVID watch would be the sole solution. We saw it as an adjunct and a facilitator to the kind of care that Penn Medicine could normally deliver. And of course, many patients took advantage of the care pathways that they already had. And we ramped up the telemedicine services that Penn Medicine was able to deliver. So it's not a failure of COVID watch if someone on COVID watch calls their doctor. It's the success of the Penn Medicine system that we were able to support patients in a variety of ways. So my summary answer there is that the sort of 83% not needing to be escalated through COVID watch is a combination of two factors. One is that, frankly, and fortunately, many of patients who are infected with COVID won't actually need to go to the emergency room and won't need an intensive care unit. And the second point, which is that there are other pathways and patterns of care that COVID watch was a supplement to. And as we ramped up those services, we were able to find sort of lots of channels to support our patients and our community. And I think lots of health systems did that, right? I'm talking about Penn Medicine because I'm connected most with that, but so many health systems around the country did amazingly innovative things. And, you know, I'm jealous of some of them and I think, and proud of others. And I think that the whole nation ramped up in ways that are really inspiring. Well, it's more true than ever that necessity is the mother of invention, right? Amidst great chaos, creates great opportunity for innovation. And to your point, there's been some amazing work around the nation to help solve for this. It's been absolutely inspiring to watch so many leaders just like yourself really pushing our industry forward to answer the call in regards to this crisis. And to our community, we will leave the link to this New England Journal of Medicine article in the episode notes. So simply scroll down in your podcast player and click through to read this article. It's a fantastic read. And also it'll be included over at our free global online community at passionatepioneers.com. There'll be an article around this entire episode with links to get a hold of Dr. Ash, as well as this article and an opportunity to share your insights, thoughts, and ideas as well. So thank you again for diving in a bit there, Dr. Ash. One more item I want to cover before we let you go for the day is what you and the team are doing around mental health for your employees. You're calling it COBOL, but let me set the stage. Everybody within the healthcare industry is essentially a frontline crisis responder now. It's all hands on deck. And, you know, we have to remember what is happening to these frontline responders, to our colleagues in this industry, the stress they're going through, not only for themselves, but with their families. I want to hear a little bit more about what you and the team are doing to address this crisis within the crisis and what we can learn from that as well. Yeah, Mike, thanks. I'm glad you're highlighting this because it really is a crisis of its own. 
And just to set the stage a little bit, even before the pandemic, you know, the nation as a whole has not served itself well in providing behavioral health care through employment settings or just in general, right? We tend to underpay those people who deliver mental health services. Behavioral health needs are often stigmatized. They're just a variety of structural barriers that often prevent people from getting the mental health that they need. And on that sort of foundation, we add this sort of the crisis of the pandemic and healthcare workers who are now they're sort of first responders. They are, frankly, there are enormous numbers of reasons why behavioral health or mental health problems might be exacerbated during the pandemic. They're perfectly obvious to all of us, but they include, frankly, the long hours, the stresses of working in a pandemic, often certainly in the early days with uncertain amounts of personal protective equipment. There was the challenge of taking care of patients who have a a new disease that we didn't have a good understanding of. And many of those patients, they were dying and healthcare workers were feeling often helpless around them. And then of course, the personal needs of healthcare workers who were worried often less about their own health, but of the fact that they might contract the disease and transmit it to other patients or bring it home to their families. And all of those stresses and many others really conspired, I think, to increase the need for behavioral health services on the front lines. And in that context, some colleagues, Cecilia Livesey, who's a psychiatrist at Penn Medicine, Kelly Kugler, who is a designer and innovation manager within the Penn Medicine Center for Healthcare Innovation, really combined with some others to create a platform that they called Cobalt that really just facilitated the ability of people in need of behavioral health services. It was sort of a matchmaking service of matching them, the people in need, with the people the clinical providers of behavioral health services who wanted help. I mean, it's not, you know, it's in some sense, it was sort of like a Craigslist of matching up those in need with those who could provide services. Because remember, everyone wanted to help at this point. And by facilitating that, by creating a kind of marketplace for that and building into that a series of online resources that could help people, we found that, or they found enormous demand revealing itself in the use of this platform. Within a month of launching this service, I think there were something like 10,000 users of this platform, including including maybe 40 patients who had expressed, 40 employees, frankly, expressing some self-harm thoughts, thoughts of self-harm, suicide, and the like. So like really, so this isn't like the well and worried here. These were people who really had behavioral health needs that needed to be served. So if you turn on a program and within a few weeks, you've got 10,000 users, you know, you have tapped into some kind of previously unmet demand. Now, I think that that demand was always there, probably not to the same degree. And I think this is incredibly telling for the kinds of services that frankly, a lot of settings need to provide. Now, I will say that this program would not have been possible without the kind of insight, let's say Cecilia Livesey and Kelly Kugler had, without the support of the clinicians who were willing to volunteer their time as a volunteer sort of behavioral health care providers. And this also required leadership from Penn Medicine. And particularly, it required 
funding support, which in this case we got from United Health Group from Minnesota, who had provided us a grant, you know, to support innovation well before the COVID pandemic hit, but we were able to deploy resources to build this out rapidly in ways that might otherwise have been impossible. And so that financial support from United Health Group in partnership with Penn Medicine really helped accelerate this progress. Now, I think this is the future. I really think that models like this that facilitate behavioral health services, which frankly rarely needed to be conducted face-to-face in the first place. I think this is a great way to find lower cost ways to increase the access and delivery of behavioral health services to broad communities in ways that are effective and non-stigmatizing. And I think this is one of those pandemic dividends, right? We're all looking for the silver linings of the coronavirus pandemic. And I think we will find those silver linings in the programs that we created in response to the pandemic that have value beyond it. And this I think is a keeper. So powerful. And you're 100% spot on, Dr. Ash. There's no doubt, yes, we are staring down one of the biggest and most profound health crises of our generation, of our lifetime. But I also believe that there's an opportunity within those, that significant ash heap to have so many phoenixes rise from it. This is one of those. And I am so inspired by the work on how quickly so many of you came together to launch this. So I'm going to put you on the spot I'm going to put you on the record here with this podcast. I hope the answer to my question is going to be very easy to answer. It's my hope that this program, Cobalt, will continue on beyond the pandemic. Is that a yes? That is a yes. This is definitely a keeper. We think this is the model, not just for employment settings, but just general insurance settings and the like. We need to find a way to deliver behavioral health services to broader segments of the community effectively and less expensively and without the stigma. And I think that cobalt is on the path toward that. And I think it is likely to be a boon to the providers of those services as well as the patients who receive them. Absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you. Hopefully that was an easy question to answer. It sounded like it was. So this is exactly the types of innovation and services that I believe we need in in our industry to better serve all of us, whether we work within the industry or, of course, most importantly, the patients that we all should be serving. So thank you for answering that uh, hopefully softball question there. So, Dr. Ash, before we start signing off here and getting you back to the important work with your center and beyond, can you share with us some contact points online where our community can learn more, contact you, find out more how they can all be involved in so many of these inspiring initiatives that you guys and the team are putting forward? Yeah, well, all of this work has been done through my role as director of the Center for Healthcare Innovation at Penn Medicine. And if you sort of Google that, Penn Medicine Center for Healthcare Innovation, you can see a list of all of the projects that we've been doing over the years. Of course, most of them have been completely unrelated to COVID, but we've got a separate page up that explains the many programs that we didn't get a chance to talk about today that represent how Penn Medicine sort of pivoted really on a dime to change the way we imagine care at a time when, frankly, we need to have less direct touching of our patients. And we worked hard to not only make it safe to take care of patients, but actually to make our patients feel safe in the process. And if you go to the Penn Medicine Center for Healthcare Innovation website, you'll see a list of those projects and some of the kinds of projects that were really the antecedents that gave us a jump start 
for the work that we did in response to the pandemic. So I hope people will check it out. We're pretty proud of that, those activities. And we'd love for your comments on the site and to follow us on Twitter, which you can do from the site. And we'd love everyone to stay in touch. Excellent. We'll also make it easy for the community. We'll uh, include the direct link to the center within the episode notes. So simply scroll down in your favorite podcast player, click on through. We'll also have all of those contact points over at our free global online community at passionatepioneers.com. Well, Dr. Ash, I feel like we could be here for hours on end because this is the kind of stuff that has me so excited, knowing that there's leaders and innovative minds and people that are so passionate and dedicated to moving our industry forward. And you're definitely one of those. So I really enjoyed our time together today. I'm looking forward to more. Hopefully we'll have you back for for an episode to talk what's happening within the center above and beyond just COVID because there's so much happening in your camp. But for now, thank you for being with us. Thank you for taking the time to be with our community. And we look forward to continuing to work alongside you during this very important journey. Thank you, Dr. Ash. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been totally terrific talking with you. What a privilege. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.